views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. evening and welcome to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. On this Monday, Monday evening, it is August the 20th, 2018. Just a couple of minutes after 6 p.m. Eastern. Shout out to those all over the world who are listeners of the Black Talk Radio Network. Without you, we wouldn't even have a need to exist. So just want to give a shout out to everybody as we get started this evening, I do have um, several guests planned for you just in this first hour. We may only do an hour, it just depends, but we have a couple of guests coming on and we'll be top tackling the topics of school busing, uh, school closures, um, reading this story out of Crete, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. I'll just remind it of, you know, memories came to mind when I was in Detroit and was a victim of school busing uh, taken from my elementary school where I knew everyone. It was a neighborhood school um, and shipped across town to a predominantly white school. And this was in the 1970s doing force busing uh, during that period to achieve integration and you know, it also opens up the debate about segregation versus integration. You know, um, I had one of those, we had everything we needed before uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, before Dr. King uh, got federal laws to make it illegal um, in employment discrimination based on your race, sex, national origin, religion, things of that nature. You know, we still had those people who have this mythological um, view because it's based on myths that the black community, and we're talking millions of people, millions upon millions upon millions of people. It was like five million just by themselves, five million victims of slavery after the end of the Civil War. So we're talking millions of people. And it just reminded me of what was happening then you had uh, newly minted American citizens who were then taxed uh, without representation because they were denying them the right to vote. But not only, you know, uh, denying them the right to vote, voting is important when it comes to local school boards, 
and and you know things that's going on locally, how resources will be allocated and what have you. So what was happening during segregation when we had everything we needed? Well, they was taking black folks tax dollars that were supposed to or you would think would go to their their black schools. This is during segregation. This is during Jim Crow period. Uh, prior to, you know, everything I mentioned, a uh, uh, Board of Education uh, decision by the Supreme Court, as well as laws against uh, discrimination uh, coming out of the civil civil rights movement. So this was before all of that. Well, they take your money, your money as a black taxpayer, and most of the resources would go to keeping these white schools where all white children were going with every equipped with everything they needed the latest the new books all the new equipment and so i don't know where people get that we had everything we needed and so much things were so much better than after integration so what happened with with uh integration is they begin to close a lot of black schools Okay, they said, no, we're not going to go by the spirit of the decision that um, separate but equal is unconstitutional because the system is inherently unequal and is racist. Okay, so instead of going by the spirit of that legal decision, they went by the letter. And what they did was close black schools and divvy up the black student population and bust them off to different, you know, uh, white counties. They would take the, um, how should I say, the academically higher achievers, high achievers, send them to the white schools and then leave everybody else behind still not providing, you know, uh, um, the proper infrastructure and resources for those black schools. Um, so I, I tell you, man, it, if you don't really read this history and just listen to people tell you stories and give you opinions, then that's what you'll be left with is stories and opinions and, and not really all the facts. So tonight on BTR news, we are going to tackle the topic of forced school busing that was historically, that has historically uprooted and disproportionately impacted black students and the resources diverted away from the predominantly black communities towards schools and predominantly white communities. Again, this is just like during the days of Jim Crow school segregation. Same thing was going on then as what's going on now. We will have a roundtable report from three panelists tonight um, who are opposed to these actions in Crete Monique Community Unit this school district 201U which is in the suburb of Chicago Illinois uh, our panelists coming on tonight to uh, share this story with us will be Cynthia Hudson who was original plaintiff in a case um, you know challenging the disproportionate impact of school busing on black children because they when I was bused in Detroit uh, and my mom was working in the school I was bused from, you know, they took me out there, bused me to a white school. I can tell you, and I bet you educators from that period can tell you they were not, there were not any bus loads of white kids being bused in to go to these black schools. So it's always been one way. So I guess um, this was challenged in court 
1998, Cynthia Hudson, the original plaintiff, and they obtained a consent decree in the case. Similar to when we hear about police departments behaving badly and then they are found to violate the civil rights, constitutional rights of the residents. Think Ferguson, the Ferguson report that the uh, Justice Department did. So they put these police departments under federal monitoring, just like Baltimore is supposed to be right now. Just saw a man beat beaten brutally by a Baltimore cop. But so uh, this school district is under a similar decree. So, and we will also have two school board members, black trustees of Moni Township, school board members, Mr. Mo Brown and Dr. Nakia Hall be joining us tonight to uh, get into some of the details of, of these stories, of uh, this story coming to you out of Illinois. Now, after we speak with them at about the half hour mark, we'll be joined uh, again on the on the station. I don't know if she's ever been on Black Talk Radio news before, but we'll have Sister Gwen, who is a longtime Momia Abu-Jamal supporter. Uh, she is with the campaign to bring Momia home. And the supporters are trying to rally as much support and publicity as possible ahead of Momia's upcoming court appearance, which will be later this month. So joining us around 6.30 p.m. Eastern will be Sister Gwen to tell us about this latest campaign. Um, Justice on trial, August the 30th is when his court date will be. That's just 10 days from now. Be at 8 o'clock in the a.m., uh, at the Court of Common Pleas, and of course, this is in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So let me check my board. I asked my guests to call in um, at 10 after. So this is how I'm going to um, check the phone lines to see if we have our guests. I'm going to call out our scheduled guest name. We have three of them. And if you're on the board, just hit star star to unmute yourself and I'm going to read a little bit of your bio and give you a chance to say hello so we're going to do it one at a time our first uh, person that we would like to try to find on our board is Miss Cynthia Hudson are, are you on the line again as I stated Cynthia Hudson is one of the original plaintiffs in the 11 in an 11 year successful lawsuit brought against the 201U school district Palmer at all versus Board of Education of Community Unit School District 201U at all. Uh, it resulted in a federal consent decree, which is now expired, but it was instituted against the district in 1998 for establishing, maintaining, and enforcing attendance units, attendance policies and practices in a one-way busing scheme, which had a, a disparate impact on African-American community of University Park. This is, again, is a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. So let me check the board. Okay, I don't see that Cynthia is on. So let's see if we have one of the school board members, Mr. Maurice Mo Brown. Uh, he wears several hats in the school district, a senior electrical engineer by profession. He has been a taxpayer in the district for the past 27 years. He's been a standing member of the District 201U School Board for the past eight years. He has been a distinguished trustee of Moni Township, the governing body 
uh, for the 201U school district for the past 10 years. Do we have Mr. Maurice Brown on the air? Okay, that's a no for Mr. Brown. All right, let me uh, name our second panelist, Dr. Nakia Hall, who is a nine-and-a-half-year member of the Crete Monet Board of Education, is currently the longest-seated member on the board and has served as president for four years as well as vice president and secretary. She is a longtime resident of University Park with four children who have all attended Crete Monet's Monet schools and most specifically attended Coretta Scott King Magnet School, which I hear uh, from the press release they're supposed to close. So I apologize. It doesn't seem like we have any of our playing guests um, who are joining us. And I did send out a email. So let me do this. Let me take a short break and try to get our contact person to find out what's going on, see if we can get them on the line. Uh, if we had to reschedule, we'll reschedule, but we definitely have confirmed uh, at 6.30, we will be talking about Momia's case, and let me just pull up my information here, and we will be talking to Sister Gwen, again, with the campaign to bring Momia home, so y'all bear with me. And hold on just a second. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
And welcome back to BTR News. My name is Scotty Reese. So I just sent a text to the contact person. I'm not sure if there was a, a confusion over the time zone. They're in the Eastern time zone, just like we are. Chicago is. So um, if they call in within the next 15 minutes, we'll go ahead and, and knock their segment out. If they call in after near the top of the hour, we'll get them in. But it looks like we're probably going to reschedule. So we do have Sister Gwen who is going to be joining us here in just about what 13 minutes. So I'm going to go over some quick news of the day, some things that caught my eye uh before we talk to Sister Gwen again about uh Mumia Abu Jamal, uh Black Panther political prisoner, independent journalist working I say working I'm working behind the enemy lines of USAE. I mean, he's working from behind the prison plantation walls. You know what I'm saying? So I tell you, man, you got to get that work in as best you can. And so just that's just a testament to all the people who have uh, helped him to produce his commentary and get them out to the public as, again, he continues, um, you know, his journalism behind these enemy lines. All right, so some quick news of the day. Some quick news of the day. Listen, I kind of, I ain't going to say I made some people mad because sometimes we use these words and, and, you know, it's not accurate. I don't think these people were mad at me. I think they were just saying, hey, don't compare Amorosa to the character in Spook who sat by the door because I was, you know, just joking around. I said, Amorosa seemed to have been on some spook who sat by the door type stuff. Recording folks, sitting by the door, seeing what's going on, who's coming in, who's going out, uh, having three-way conversations on the phone, and Amorosa recording like she a private investigator or a spook or something, you know, on some uh, uh, espionage-type, counter-revolutionary-type I mean, revolutionary type stuff. So that wasn't a good analogy using that film. So I, you know, thought about it today as I was reading more stories concerning Amorosa, and I said, you know what? Amorosa, it'd be more accurate to compare Amorosa to the TV character Olivia Pope of Scandal. Yeah, y'all know what? Now, I wasn't a fan of, again, fan. I didn't watch that series. I don't watch those type of series, but it was pretty popular, written by Shonda Rhimes. Pretty popular, starring, um, I forget the uh, sister name who played in Django as well, but she plays the uh, lead character, which is Olivia Pope, who is a Washington, D.C. fixer, and it's so popular, especially among black women, because, you know, Shonda Rhimes, a black woman, she wrote it, directed it, I guess, or whatnot, and and then, you know, you have uh, this black woman who's the main character, Olivia Pope, and she's supposed to be a fixer, meaning that she cover up all the corruption and the affairs and and all that kind of stuff the graph she covers it up that's what her job is that's what she's paid to do at least that's what i gather from listening to people talk about it um i suppose i could pull it up and read you the program synapses or the yeah the program synapses but uh yeah that's what she does so 
I heard that Shonda Rhimes before she became this big celebrated TV producer. That's what she used to do in Washington, D.C. That Olivia Pope was based on Shonda Rhimes' real life, working in Washington, D.C. as, I guess they call them sometimes, media consultants or publicists. And, and, but really, you know, they, they work on spinning the news for and handling political crisis and whatnot. So that's what I would compare what Amorosa's doing is to the character Olivia Pope, except for one caveat, though, difference between Amorosa, what she's doing, and what Olivia Pope, the TV character, does. The TV character helps them to cover up their crimes and misdeeds and improprieties and indiscretions and what have you. But that doesn't seem to be what Amarosa has been doing. Or if she was doing it or was a part of it, she was making tapes. She was making recordings. And now she is releasing those recordings one by one in publicizing her book, Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House, I believe is the proper title, but it's Unhinged. And she dropping dimes or dropping quarters, as I heard Roland, Roland Martin say. She naming names. She not only naming names, she rolling tape on, on them and what have you. So that would be the more accurate uh, description of her. Um, so if I offended anybody by bringing up the spook who sat by the door, I do apologize uh, for that. All right, I'm checking the board. I still see we haven't had our callers, it, it, uh, our planned panel members. Um, so we're definitely going to have to reschedule that. But I will share this with you. They actually had a protest uh, today. There was a protest that was going on this morning. Let me uh, read it. Okay, so... Yes, there does seem to be some miscommunication. So what it looks like is that they will be joining us at 7.05 Eastern, 7.05 Eastern. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what it is because I had wanted them to call in at 6.05 p.m. Eastern, but I'm seeing in her reply she got it down at 7.05 Eastern that they will be calling. All right, so we will talk to them. But as I said, there was a protest today. I shared a couple of images from some past protests. Um, and, you know, as I was talking to Marty Jewell, who is a three-time city council member who was a guest last Friday, when we were talking about the use of force versus uh, deadly force, necessary force versus deadly force and how police officers are trained in the United States. But like he, he said, and he made a lot of sense. You know, he was talking about calling the police chief or the sheriff or these officials work for you. You pay taxes. Whether you own property and you just renting, you still paying property taxes. You think that rent, that per, that landlord isn't uh, passing the cost of his property taxes in the along to you in the rent, you think that's not happening? Do you shop at the stores in those communities? Do you pay sales tax? 
Okay, so you are taxed. You are a taxpayer, all right? And so these people, technically, they like to call them public servants, right? They say they work for you, right? But a lot of us, we don't act like they work for us. We don't take that. We're the slave in the master-slave uh, 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 relationship in that in that scenario, okay? We're not taking on the ownership that a master has over these public officials. And, you know, and when I say we, like Marty said, it hasn't been a we in a long time. We're so discombobulated, disjointed, disunified, and what have you. Um, but that's not to say that all communities are like that. There are communities you read about, hear about, see on YouTube or something of community organizations holding these officials to an account or at least attempting to hold them to the account. And we've seen them hold them to an account through the ballot box and getting rid of certain prosecutors around um, um, the nation who have been names attached to some of these egregious cases of, of vigilante violence, police violence, and these prosecutors don't weren't interested in pursuing justice, but a perverted outcome. You know, like we saw in Ferguson with the killing of Michael Brown, no longer is Bob McCullough he going to be the prosecutor. So I don't want to say we and say everybody, okay? There are individuals, there are groups, there are organizations that step up and try to bring these people to account for what they're doing. But hey, just complaining about it, calling in. Yeah, it's good to talk about it. That's how you disseminate information. That's how you uncover the facts. That's how you then can work on solutions. Okay, so it's good to talk about it, but talking ain't going to do, ain't doing. You know what I'm saying? You're supposed to talk, put it down on paper, organize around what you got on your paper, and then put that plan into action. You have to then do some action, whether that, that's voting, whether that's participating in telephone campaigns, uh, to call these people, depending upon whatever the individual campaign is asking you to do, that's going to school board meetings, that's voting for school board members, that's running for school board members. It's not all the way, you know, that's that's where I think we don't put a lot of focus on is those who do focus on voting, we don't focus on running as much as we should. And I'm not talking about running for as a Republican for Congress or running as a Democrat for the Senate. I'm talking about running for the school board. I'm talking about running for, uh, if they elect them school superintendent, I'm talking about electing your running to be the sheriff. Sheriff holds a lot of power in the County. Okay. So we need to train up, be training up our young people to, take office, to take office and run it the way that the people that's going to benefit the people and not the system. Okay? And that was a little bit some of what the Black Panther Party was engaged in. They were not just a, a 
an organization that was helping people with his various survival programs. Bobby Seale ran for president. No, I'm not sure he ran for president. I think he ran for mayor of Oakland. Yeah, he ran for mayor of Oakland. So they did field candidates. It was really a party, a political party with different, you know, uh, um, different wings of the party that did different things. So I guess they were sort of like a political party, um, nonprofit, community grassroots organization, hybrid, something like that. You know, probably separate on paper, but of course they were interconnected. So uh, definitely that's something we have to do. So, uh, you know, bringing up the Black Panthers because we know Robert Self Hayes um, has finally been set free out of New York City, member of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army as well. And he just finally got set free. I think something after 40 years, failing health after medical neglect all those years on the plantation. So uh, definitely similar across the board same with Momia who we are about to um, discuss with Sister Gwen if we have her on the line Sister Gwen if you could just unmute yourself by hitting star star I have a couple of New York numbers not sure which one is yours but Sister Gwen is going to join us uh, to talk about the latest action uh, being um, called upon calling us to action the campaign to bring Momia home. Um, he has a court date. We'll find out from her what this court date is about. I hope it's to dismiss charges, get the uh, prosecutor, do as much as they can, you know, just drop the case or or we'll find out the details. You know, he's appealing his stuff, stop opposing his appeal. So we're trying to get as much information from her as possible and uh, his court date is August the 30th at 8 o'clock a.m. Eastern, Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, um, not sure if I see, let me see if I can check my messages, see if we have a phone number uh, that I should recognize, not sure. Let me see. Area area code nine one seven. Is this sister Gwen we have on the line? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Well, welcome, Sister Gwen. Uh thank you for joining us here on the Black Talk Radio Network once again. I was uh contacted by my abolitionist comrade who is also a supporter of Momia and bringing him home, but Tag, who uh represents out of the NYC area. And he wanted you to, he reached out to me to bring you on today um, about an upcoming trial just 10 days away. Uh, I believe Momia will be in court. So can you just briefly, for those who've never heard you on prior broadcast, get them just as much as you would like to share about your background, your work surrounding Momia, and then we could get into the details of any upcoming rallies and especially the details concerning his court appearance and what what's that about. Sister Gwen. Hi. Hi. Good, good evening. And thank you for having me on your show. <clears throat> I first learned about uh, Mumia's case when I was in college, um, getting my B.A. Um, in political science. And um, 
I didn't go on the initial rally. I went to one in 1999, and there was thousands of people there. I actually organized a bus um, of people in my uh, local vicinity in Queens. I live in Queens. And I organized a charter bus with um, some Green Party members. I'm a Green Party member in New York. And um, I learned about his case through listening to BAI, listening to um, the uh, show called The Morning Show, no, Wake Up Call with Bernard White and Amy Goodman. And I heard his um, radio commentary and learned about his case, learned about who he was. I read a book. Uh, about him, um, written by Terry Bison, and it didn't add up. It just didn't make sense that a radio journalist would suddenly um, commit murder, uh, a capital offense, which is, you know, punishable by death. It just didn't add up. And um, ever since then, I've been involved with the case, uh, organized that bus, and, and continue to organize um, for the for the liberation of Mumia Abu Jamal because I know I know he's he's innocent. There's no way in the world he could have killed anybody. Uh, just as um, I never killed anybody. So it's it's a frame up because he um, was a, is a political activist. He was a former Black Panther, uh, as you as you mentioned earlier. Uh, he also was an ardent Move supporter and. Um, just a very um, astute, kind man and intellectual, in fact. So it doesn't add up. Journalists don't suddenly go out and kill people. It's just uh, not. It just Spe- add especially up to not cops. <laughs> especially not cops. No, especially right. not cops. You don't go from A to Z. And, and Mumia was um, a working journalist. He was actually. Um, Moonlighting as a cab driver because he was let go of a of a, a radio job he was doing. Um, you know they found him to be a bit uh, controversial, uh, but nevertheless um, he was also head of the um, the Philadelphia um, Journalist Association and received numerous awards for his um, outstanding um, skills as a journalist and radio um, radio host. So. Um, Anyway, what's happening now is, like you said, there is a, a hearing coming up for him, very crucial hearing uh, on Thursday, August the 30th, and we are organizing a bus. I'm sorry. I'm in the building. Um, so I'm organizing a bus from here from New York, and um, we're also doing a field screening this week on Thursday at the Maisel Cinema. That's Thursday evening. Um, it's a minimal cost, $10, to see Justice on Trial. If you, people, if they attend, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, about the facts don't add up to someone like Mia being involved in a, in a, capital, in a capital murder. Um, like I said, the film is... Thursday, um, August the third, uh, August twenty third. It starts at seven p.m. and um, we also have um, the um, creator of the of the movie, uh, Dr. Johanna Fernandez, in the house, and she'll be able to take questions about the making of the uh, documentary and about where his legal case stands right now.
Now, we do Hello? know we do know over the years that as I mentioned with Robert Self Hayes finally getting out and in poor health because of the lack of health care, the I wouldn't even say lack of, I would just simply say neglect. Um, the neglect of especially Correct. these prisoners overall, um, health care is neglected, but political prisoners, if you're in there as a designated as a political prisoner, then, you know, it can get torturous. It, it amounts to Correct. torture. So uh, we know for years, Momia had uh, fought to get access to uh, treat the hepatitis C, which is pretty common throughout prisons in the United States. To me, this is a pandemic. Um, these individuals get out and it can in turn infect others because it is contagious. And so he finally uh, won through the courts his right to this life-saving medication. Has Have you heard if his health has improved? I don't know. I think it's stable right now. Um, the hepatitis is gone, but the damage is done. He he's, has contacted, contracted um, cirrhosis of the liver uh, due to two years of waiting for treatment, which was purposeful because they they knew they were going to lose. I mean, you cannot deny someone health care because it's too expensive. Um, if that was, you know, it just, that's, again, you know, that's um, a violation of the, uh, what is it, the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. You know, the way I'm thinking is, uh, my analysis of it is you, you, you broke it, so you fix it. Right. Well, me, it has no business being in that prison. He never killed anyone, and the fact is, is that since he's there, they're obligated to treat him and and that's exactly what happened. He finally got the medicine. Now, He's cured of the hepatitis C, but he still is vulnerable to getting cancer down the line through uh, cirrhosis of the liver. Right. Now, you mentioned, you know, we or we mentioned that he went through the courts. So was that what he argued, that denial of this life-saving drug uh, was a violation of his Eighth Amendment constitutional right, and that's what he won on, or did he argue something else? If you, if you ha- by chance know, or anybody else out there that's listening that may know, you know, um, my guess is that would see. I can't say for sure, but my guess is I would say probably ninety percent that that would be the legal argument um, for the reason. Um, why they were trying to deny him the treatment, but the judge said it was it's cruel and unusual. You cannot deny someone treatment because it's it's prohibitive. It's too expensive. That's not Lumia's problem. That's your that's the that's the state's problem. As a matter of fact, right. I believe um, they went and built built another prison. So it's not that they don't have the money. It's it's how they want to spend it. All right. As so a matter we... of fact, they spent about. Mm-hmm. I believe they spent over a hundred grand just just fighting the case, and his and his treatment was eighty thousand. So they spent well over a hundred thousand trying to deny him the, the the medicine that he needed, and they lost anyway. So that was you know, right? That's taxpayers' money. Yeah, you know, and I think that all prisoners should have access to that same drug, and. If these states are overpaying for the drug, it sounds like you said the uh, cost of the treatment was like how much? Eighty. 
eighty grand. Eighty grand. For the full twelve week, I believe it was a twelve or sixteen week regimen now we know which is ridiculous yeah like we've seen the story before where the guy i think he was even taking to court um the drug pharmaceutical uh ceo or something and um i think it was those epi pens or some sort of sort of crucial drug that could be used and i mean he just marked the price up so high as to, you know, make medicine unaffordable for the poor and what have you. So, you know, um, surely states can barter for cheaper prices. But to me, that's a human right to have access to that. You know, I didn't have hepatitis C when I came into prison and I got it while I was in prison. So you are responsible for me contracting hepatitis C. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was passed out. Um, in the prison, and they had to uh, bring him immediately to the hospital. They thought it was initially um, a sugar diabetes, and then later on, um, it was determined that it was um, active hepatitis. They knew, um, I think they knew that he did have um, hepatitis, but it wasn't active because it, it sits a long time in the body before it can um, start to attack attack your immune system so um it was you know it was it was hit and miss they claimed they didn't know what was wrong and this that the other and eventually they found out there was you know his hepatitis had um finally um come you know active so and then and then on top of that they they denied him the medicine for two years could you imagine waiting i mean waiting for a critical i mean just there's not that many things that'll cure you these days, but an actual cure, and they're denying it because it's too expensive. Sorry, that's not, you know, that's not um, a prisoner's problem. That's the state's problem, and they're um, woeful. They're they're on the line for the cost. Yeah, either uh, that or cut me a loose. Right, you know? which is the and ultimate goal. To do that. Yeah, which is the ultimate goal, and, um, you know, that's what this hearing will be about. Um, As we've reported in the past, as we've had, you know, people come on and share information about the case, this hearing that's going to happen on the 30th is a critical hearing dealing with former Judge Ronald Castillo, uh, his bias and conflict of interest, uh, because he sat in on the district court case, uh, then, you know, he became a Supreme Court, uh, not Supreme Court, uh, Pennsylvania Court, Supreme Court judge. You know, we're talking about the state Supreme Correct. Court and didn't recuse himself and and just all kind of um, misconduct in office and what have you. Or miss all kinds of shenanigans. And he also was involved in creating a tape uh, to teach uh, new DAs how to keep blacks off the juries. So his yeah. he has a long history of being uh, um, right. So a it's corrupt, a corrupt DA, a corrupt, a corrupt judge, and just an overall um, unethical human being. It sounds like to me. So that anytime you want to keep uh, people off a jury because of the color of their skin, and because you, you believe that they may not. Uh, vote in the way you think they should vote or think the way that you should think 
you you know that's clear that's clear bias and discrimination and uh, it's it's intolerable. His name is is written on the t- on videotape that he created um, to teach people to teach Philadelphia uh, district attorneys, you know, coming up in that field how to keep blacks off a jury. So he has a long history of um, of all kinds of shenanigans and wrongdoing. Now, will this um, unfortunately will this be the first case? Uh, or court action concerning Mamiya's case that'll go before Krasner, the new uh, district attorney there in Philadelphia. There are other cases um, that Castillo was involved with that um, defense attorneys are trying to get a hearing. No, no, that's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, okay, when you go to court, when Mamiya goes to court on Thursday on. August the 30th. So who will be representing the state? Would it be Krasner, the new DA? Absolutely, yes. So that's what I mean. It'll be the new DA's assistant. It'll be the new DA's assistant. Okay. Um, I don't remember her name, but yeah, it'll be um, his office, um, a DA representing his his interests or the state's, or the state's interests, I should say, or city's interests, whichever you want to call it. Um, opposing, uh, they they don't they don't want to let up on these files. They claim that there's no files uh, that that indicates because uh, uh, his involvement, Ronald Castile's uh, involvement in Mumia's case, and I don't believe, we don't believe that that's, that can possibly be because um, during the original trial, DA. Um, uh, Castile was an assistant DA. He was, a, excuse me, a senior district attorney on when that case was, when Mumia's case was originally prosecuted. So there's no way in, you know, on this earth that he had no involvement in that, in critical decisions um, pertaining to that case. And then later on, as you stated, when the case was up for appeal and, um, Castillo uh, had ran for um, Pennsylvania um, Supreme Court Justice one because of the support of the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, and he uh, was involved in hearing Mumia's appeals and, and obviously denied them. Mm. So it's it the cases ramp ramp. Uh, what is the word? It's it's full of. Uh, inconsistencies and corruption and Mumia can't get a break. That's what the that's what the shame of it all. As you look at all the uh, the corruption in the case, starting from when the police framed Mumia uh, for killing this officer when they came on the scene and they were um, they beat him up um, when he was critically wounded. They threw they threw him and threw him in. Um, in front of a telephone pole, they tampered with the gun. Uh, Mumia's what the weapon that Mumia uh, legally owned wasn't even on the scene. It was in it was in his car. So how could he have killed anyone? Secondly, his there's no uh, gunpowder residue on Mumia's hands. They said that the, um, they said that they um, didn't find any gunpowder residue on his hands and thirdly there was no they said that um 
the prosecution said that Romia shot uh, Daniel Park uh, point blank range up close. Well, then that would mean that there should be a Daniel Faulkner's blood somewhere on Romia's body. That didn't exist either. What did exist is a fourth person on the scene uh, with, uh, matter of fact, uh, Daniel Faulkner had that person's ID in the pot in his pocket. So it's a clear frame up from the from the, from the get go. They wanted Romia because of his radical uh, politics and because he had the ability uh, to speak well, to write well, all of those things. All right. So added up to Romia being where he's at. All right. So. The there's going to be the film that you mentioned as we get ready to wrap it up. Justice on Justice trial. On trial. Right. So that's that going for, uh, Thursday. Thursday. Thursday for, uh, August the twenty third at seven p.m. at Maisel's Cinema, uh, which is on Malcolm X between one hundred and twenty seventh and one twenty eight. Uh, it'll. Um, uh, start at seven, so I should. It's, it's not a large theater, so if you want to get a seat, you should get there probably before seven. Now the you're will be open probably around six thirty. Now you're also organizing a bus. I imagine to leave from the NYC area to go to Philly for the case. Yes, we are. So so they can call for tickets for bus tickets is two one two. Three three zero eight zero two nine. That's the Free Mumia Coalition hotline number. Again, that's two one two three three zero eight zero two nine. Or they can write us uh, at bringmumiahome at gmail dot com for more information about either transportation or the movie, or more information about Mumia's case. All right. Well, Sister Gwen, thank you for continuing to be a voice out here for Mumia and bringing him home. And, you know, just we appreciate you. It's like family. You're like family now. You've been on the network a couple of times. And if there's any updates or any pressing news, just let Tag know. He knows what to do uh, and getting in touch with me. And we'll have you back to get that information out. But thank you again. And you have a blessed evening. You do the same and free Mumia and free all political prisons. Thank you. All right, yeah. that was that was Sister uh, Gwen representing from the campaign to bring Mumia home. Again, you have just in three days this Thursday the film, um, which will help you know provide funds to support this campaign to bring Momia home. But then on the 30th, you have the actual court date. You had a court hearing uh, concerning this corrupt judge, a uh, conflict of interest. And if you're in the NYC area, she just gave you the information where you can get bus tickets to uh, uh, join those who are going to attend the hearing in Philadelphia, PA. All right, so listen, I'm going to go ahead and take a music break as I get prepared to bring on our guests who where we'll be talking about, in a historical context, you know, the fourth school busing um, and how it disproportionately impacted black students. That was the case in Detroit. I can't speak for other people. All I can speak on is when I was bused. In terms of what was happening in Cleveland, New York, um, 
anywhere, anywhere else in the nation, Charlotte, North Carolina, I, I don't know. Tuscaloosa, uh, Alabama, uh, Richmond, Virginia. I don't know what was going on in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, or when they started, you know, this this uh, segregation to come into compliance with Brown versus the Board of Education, which was to address the issue, the top or the uh, issue of separate but equal, meaning these black schools don't have no resources, school don't have no heat. Just like we hear about today, uh, that school in Baltimore where the kids was going to school with and had to keep on their winter coats because there was no heating in the school buildings. But yet you're building this multi-million dollar child detention facility. And this is the type of stuff that they were dealing with during the Jim Crow state sanctioned, federally supported segregation, taxing the black people taking that tax money from the black people, building up the white schools because it's white only while neglecting the black schools. That's how it really was for most of the schools, okay, during segregation. That's how it really, really was because every community was not Tulsa. It wasn't the so-called Black Wall Street. It, that no, those were those were not anything normal. That's why you can name them on on one hand or two hands. That's how few and far between these very profitable black community. That was not all the black communities. Come on, how you gonna tell the story about sharecropping, but then talk about all oh, these sharecroppers had everything they needed? If that was the case, they wouldn't have been sharecropping. Another form of slavery. So it's a complicated. Well, I, it's not really that complicated to me, but it can be a subject of debate. And so after Brown uh, versus the Board of Education, when they said, "Look," These schools are separate and they darn show ain't equal. So you're going to have to equalize, make every, all, you know, the resources available and what have you, everybody on a level playing field, if you will. But that was, we hope the spirit of the decision, but they followed the letter. Okay. What we'll do is we'll just shutter some of these schools since we ain't been keeping them up anyway. They was falling down anyway fire these black teachers and then split up the black student population and send them here, there, and everywhere. Okay? So that that's what's really what's going on. And this is what's going on today. That's what this story uh, reminds me of. So you're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, and we're going to take a music break, and then we'll um, come back on the other side, hopefully with our guests uh, who are scheduled to call in at 7.05 Eastern. We'll be right back. I 
no joke. I used to let the mic smoke. Now I slam it when I'm gonna make sure it's broke. When I'm going, no one gets on. Cause I won't let nobody press up and mess up the scene I set. I like to stand in a crowd and watch the people wonder. Damn, but think about it, then you understand. I'm just an addict, addicted to music. Maybe it's a habit. I gotta use it. Even if it's jazz or the quiet storm. I hook a beat up, convert it into hip-hop form. Write a rhyme and graffiti in every show you see me in. Deep concentration, cause I'm no comedian. Jokers are wild if you wanna be tame. I treat you like a child and you're gonna be named. Another enemy, not even a friend of me. Cause you'll get fried in the end when you pretend to be competing. Cause I just put your mind on pause and I complete when you compare my rhyme with yours. I wake you up and as I stare in your face, you seem stunned. Remember me, the one you got your idea from. But soon you start to suffer. The tuna get rougher when you start to stutter. That's when you had enough of fighting it'll make you choke. You can't provoke, you can't cope. You should have broke because I ain't no joke. Joke. Who can keep the average dancer hyper as a heart attack? Nobody's smiling, cause you're expressing the rhyme that I'm styling. This is what we all sit down to write. You can't make it, so you take it home, break it, and bite. Use pieces and bits of all my hip-hop hits. Get the style down, packed, then it's time to switch. Put my tape on pause and add some more to yours. Then you figured you're ready for the neighborhood chores. The so E-M-C-E-E, don't even try to be. When you come up to speak, don't even lie to me. You like to exaggerate, dream and imagine Then change the rhyme around, that could aggravate me. So when you see me come up, freeze. Or you'll be one of those seven MCs. They think that I'm a new jack, but only if they knew that. They who think wrong or they who can't do that style that I'm doing. They might ruin patterns of paragraphs based on you and your RBDJ. DJ. If anything he play sound familiar, I'll wait to E say play him. So I'ma have the diss who broke. You can get a smack for this. I ain't no joke. So the needle don't budge. I hold a conversation, cause what I invent, I nominated my DJ the president. When I'm C, I'll keep a freestyle going steadily. So pucker up and whistle my melody. But whatever you do, don't miss one. There'll be another rough rhyme after this one. Before you know it, you're following the fiend. Waiting for the punchline to get the meaning. Like before the moral of my story I'm telling. Nobody beats the arse, so stop yelling. Save it, put it in your pocket for later. Cause I'm moving the crowd and be a wrecked fader. No interruptions till the mic is broke when I'm gone. Then you can joke. Cause everything is real on a serious tip. Keep playing and I get furious quick. And I take it for a walk through hell. Freeze your dome. Then watch your eyeballs swell. Guide you out of triple stage darkness. When it get dark again, then I'ma spark this microphone. Cause the heat is on. You see smoke in the finish when the beat is gone. I'm no joke. 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 Hi, 
The Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. So stop up. We didn't want to do 
tree stop. Ladies real pretty, city to city. But now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. From the bottom to the top, top to the bottom. I'm going to rock why I still got them. I'll rap and shower, have style and power. And this is our disco hour. I don't know if all of you have heard. So it's up to me to spread the word about the man that we feel it's got to be. All right, welcome back to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. We're back on the other side of our music break as we get ready to jump into our second topic of the day concerning what's going on. Looks like more of the same, more Jim Crow. And I'm particularly interested about the forced busing again, as I gave my thoughts uh, in the previous hour about being a victim of Detroit school busing. Uh, it was not a pleasant feeling, let me tell you. And again, no white children. It wasn't like it was. You you hear about these foreign exchange students. It wasn't like for every black child they sent to a white school, they sent a white child to that child, that uh, black child school. It's not like trading places. The Eddie Mur- Murphy movie, y'all remember that? He starred in that trading places. No, no, it was destroy the black community school and scatter these black children to wherever uh, they wanted to send them. And, of course, close schools, if need be, how, how darn they uh, demand, you know, equal funding, equal resources, you know, for their schools. So, yeah, that's a very interesting aspect of it. But before I jump into that and bring our guests on, bear with me right quick. Of course, y'all know this is Black Talk Radio Network. It was set up eight years ago um, because I was doing research on digital talk radio. So I started really getting into just all forms of radio. Of course, I had the communication, radio included, background from the United States military. But I was particularly troubled by the 1996 Telecommunications Act, reading about it and what all it did to destroy independently owned terrestrial FM, AM, black radio stations and how key black radio stations were to the civil rights movement as well as the black power um, movement for those that want to separate the two. But every August the 20th is National Radio Day. And so the Black Talk Media Project, which set up the Black Talk a radio network to address this problem of losing terrestrial radio stations and by using new technology and helping people to create digital online internet based radio. But today is National Radio Day, August the 20th. I'm just tell you a little bit about it. This information comes to you from National Radio day.com national radio day is a time for communities across the country to celebrate radio the goal is to strengthen the radio ecosystem highlighting all kinds of radio but especially stations that focus focus on local service we want to ensure that amazing non-commercial stations are included in the national conversation so they having events all across the country uh, usually, you know, associated with those well-funded 
public radio stations and what have you. So in commemorating this day, we ask that our listeners please consider making a donation to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. As you hear, you know, for the promos for our social media community, btrcommunity.com, the reason it has a $24 a year subscription is so that we can continue to fund our work. And, And we mentioned in that promo how it is our vision, as is mentioned by the, uh, the website National Radio Day, that localized radio service is very important. It's more important than national radio. Not to say national radio isn't important, okay? But when you have local on-air personalities bringing you local news then that population, that community will be better informed. So to help us continue our work that we established in 2008, please consider making a donation to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. All right, with that said, that was totally unplanned, um, but it just occurred to me I have to mention National Radio Day on Black Talk Radio Network. So we should be joined on the line by our guests and I gave them an introduction at the top of the hour because uh, due to my uh, not paying attention to detail and just scanning over the email uh, found out that they could only come during the second hour so I'm going to name these guests again and our guests if you are on the line um, to unmute yourself and show me on the board that you're on the line just hit star star on your phone keypad because I don't know what your numbers are to unmute you. So that's a way that we can find you. Just hit star star. And let's please uh, be cognizant of the background noise. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are scheduled to have Cynthia Hudson as part of this panel discussion. And, and basically, you know, I just want them to disseminate the information that's going on there locally with them because I'm sure it's playing out across the nation. But Cynthia Hudson, one of the original plaintiffs uh, in a lawsuit successfully brought against the 201U school district, uh, which I mentioned that case earlier, which resulted in a federal consent decree, just like they put these police departments on under. Not that, you know, it leads to better behavior on behalf of the of the uh, department uh, members, but, you know, that's what they do. Um, but it has expired. In this case, you know, this decree was in 1998, but it has expired. And so perhaps they're taking advantage of that, and now they're going to, you know, pull a play from the old playbook. So do we have Miss Hudson on the line? If you would just say hello. 618, is that Miss Hudson? Okay, who do we have at 618? Uh, Katrina Johnson. Hi, hi, Miss Johnson. Um, yeah, we're still waiting on them to call in, and we're ready to get get the um get their segment started but listen y'all this is katrina johnson who um let me know about this story and what's going on so thank you for calling in miss johnson um do you have anything you'd like to share with us uh yes uh well for the listeners who may not know um uh um 
about University Park, Illinois. Um, this is um, the hometown of um, scandal producer Shonda Rhimes. Um, she uh, wow. Wait, wait a minute. I just got through mentioning Shonda Rhimes calling Amarosa the chocolate uh, Olivia Pope of Washington D.C. So that time, um, that shined so, the rhymes, yeah. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So um, the situation um, is uh, with uh, you know the consent decree. Um, it recently expired. Um, they had so many years um, to um, improve their behavior. Basically, the the black students in um, University Park, Illinois. Um, they were all being bussed out of um, their town to um, the local white um, towns in order to go to school. Um, and uh, the consent decree found that um, the courts found that this was a, um, a, a disparate treatment of, um, of black students. And um, we had a school built here, um, a middle school, um, named after Coretta Scott King, um, and uh, that name was chosen because Coretta Scott um, was known, um, you know, to uh, be a lover of reading. Um, so what better way to, you know, inspire the black children here in the village than to have a school after um, that great legacy? And that school um, had a distinction in the state of Illinois because it was the only um, it was the only elementary school, the only uh, middle school um, that had an international baccalaureate curriculum, um, and it is a stellar, outstanding school. So the powers that be on uh, the school board, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, the consent decree um, had expired, and um, you know they were sitting back, laying in, laying back in the cut waiting for it to expire so that they could reviolate all over again. So what they want to do, um, they want to close this outstanding uh, school um, because it's in our community, you know, that is uh, mostly black, and they uh, want to um, build grade centers in the two local white um, towns of Crete and Monique. Um one will go up to second grade, and then the other one will go up to um, fifth grade, um, if I, you know, have that correct. Um, Dr. Hall um, should be on this call. She's on the school board, y and yes. she can um, correct records. Yes, I do see we have, um, we do have regular listeners from that area, but um, I'm seeing some Illinois area codes. So if we have our scheduled guests, if you're a scheduled guest, uh, let me just check the line. I'm going to check 708. Could be a listener, but 708, are you a scheduled yes. guest for us tonight? Who are we speaking with? Hi, it is. It's Dr. Nakia Hall. I'm on the line. Hi, Dr. Hall. If you'll just hold with me a second, let's see if we can get uh, some of your colleagues and uh, community members. 708, who do we have on the line? Uh, first, first 3373, three, is that one of our... This is this is Cynthia Hudson. I'm also one of your scheduled guests. Hi, Ms. Hudson. Thank you for joining Hello. us. And we should have one more, and that will be Mr. Maurice Mo Brown. 
Uh, do we have him on the line? Let me check 773. Is that Mr. Mr. Brown? Yes, that is. Uh, Mr. Reed, thank you for having me as a guest. All right. Well, thank you for joining us tonight on um, this very important subject, because as I was stating to my listeners earlier today, you know, this, although this is playing out in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, I'm sure it's playing out in many communities across the United States, especially when we're talking about black and brown communities, but specifically black communities, um, because this is the same thing that was happening when I was in elementary school and I was bust and, and they started closing schools in Detroit. And this was back in the early seventies, same thing, same thing. Uh, let's, let's go. And we want to thank Miss Johnson for, you know, giving us this overview of what we'll be talking about tonight. So first I want to go, we were just speaking about the consent decree and how that came about. And Miss Cynthia Hudson is has joined us on the line and she was one of the original plaintiffs. And so Miss Hudson again, thank you for joining us tonight on BTR News. Can you tell us what what led up to the filing of your lawsuit and any details you want to share about that and why um, and how that connects to what's going on today in your you all's community. Well, uh, uh, thank you for having me on as a guest. Um, we've been fighting this fight way before I even got into the district. I've been in this district almost 30 years. Um, friends of mine, they were fighting this fight uh, probably 20, 30 years before I got here. It's pretty much all about racism. You know, you have the white board members. Uh, first of all, we did not have a voice on the board. We didn't have a seat on the board. We have we had um, all white board members. Um, we had no voice on the board. So we had one-way busing. University Park students were being bussed out all over the district to keep their schools open. We had our kids bussed out to Creek Elementary, Moni Elementary, Creek Elementary is in Creek, Moni Elementary is in Moni. Uh, we had them bussed out to Talila in Park Forest and Balmoral in, also in Creek. Nobody was being bussed into University Park because the Crete and Moni parents were not going to send their white children into University Park. Um, with the one-way busing, no seats on the board, so therefore we had no voice. And we had, um, we had the newest school in the district. They built the middle school out here in University Park. Um, we had, it was a state-of-the-art school. They closed that school, I believe, within one year. The Crete and Moni parents didn't like it because it was a state-of-the-art school, newest school in the district. We had air. We, it, it was a great school, and their middle school had, like, asbestos and lead and all of that. It wasn't as good as the one that they just built. So the board members had to find a way to close that school. They were not going to let our kids have a better school than their kids. So they found a way to close it. So with all the stuff that they were doing to our kids, you know, the discipline rate has always been unfair. They've always done things to our kids. They've messed with our kids' grades. 
my daughter, when my daughter was in fourth or fifth grade, I had one teacher to tell me that I can give the child whatever grade I want to on their report card. And I said, no, the report card is earned by the grades that they make on their classwork, homework, tests, quizzes, and special projects. She figured she would prove it to me. My daughter has always been a straight A student. She lowered three of my daughter's grades, two two Bs, and the third grade she lowered was a C. So my daughter had A's, two Bs, and a C. That one C kept her off the honor roll. So I had to have a meeting with that teacher, the principal, and the superintendent, and the board. I kept going to them about this lady. They were never doing anything about her. So in that meeting, I had to bring in uh, someone from the Educational Advisory Committee because they kept telling me I'm taking things out of context or they didn't say what they told me or, you know, lying about what they're saying and what they're doing. So I said, I need other eyes and ears. So I went to the Educational Advisory Committee, and I asked someone if they would come into the meeting with me. Uh, I also joined the Educational Advisory Committee. At this meeting, I told the teacher, from now on to the end of the school year, I made up a sheet of paper. I, I labeled it Monday through Friday. I put every subject that my daughter had in there, and I put test quizzes and comments. I told her every day from now on to the end of the school year, you will fill this out. I want to know everything my child does in your room. Every grade she makes, you will fill it out, sign it, and send it back to me. She told me she wasn't going to do it. I told her, oh, yes, you will. Superintendent told her she will do it. And she got really, really mad. I said, now, let's see you play with my daughter's grades now. They're still playing with students' she, grades. She should have been removed. I, I would like to say she should have been removed. Um, yes, she should have. We had we have several teachers in the district that should be removed, but they're on tenure, so you can't get rid of, rid of them. My kids are 15 years apart. When my son was in the district, when he got to sixth grade, he had a teacher that every day she was trying to humiliate him. This teacher was doing this to kids before my son got into the sixth grade center. I heard about her. I kept trying to get the parents to do something about her and complain about her. They were complaining, but nothing was going on. When my son got to the sixth grade, he ended up having her. For some reason, this lady always had the intelligent black boys in her class. She was always picking on them. I went to the superintendent of schools in Joliet, and I got no help from them. They said that they would investigate it. So they called me back at the end of their investigations to only to tell me that they're going to have to agree with the school district and do what the school district wants to do. And I said, this lady have no business in the school district. She's going after our African-American boys. She's been doing it for years, and nothing is happening to her. Yes. But the white teachers who's doing this to our kids, they have tenure so they can stay but they have a very high t turnover for the African-American staff that comes into our district. They're, they don't get tenure. They don't get to stick around. And they're great teachers. They either don't get hired, or if they do get hired, 
the district finds a way to get rid of them quickly. Now, I have a quick question uh, before we bring in our other two uh, panel members, but was this what led to the lawsuit, the uh, consent decree? Now, what did the consent decree, well, I think you mentioned earlier that it, um, what was the resolution that it came up with in terms of the busing? Well, we we stopped the one-way busing. Okay. Um, How did they so rectify the, that? Stop busing altogether or start oh no, sending no, white kids they, in? What they did is they, they did rezoning, and they, they made the districts different. So, therefore, uh, if you they, they redid the boundary line. So, if you lived in a certain area, you had to go to this school. Okay. You know, if you lived in a certain area, you went to that school. So, so many went to each school. You're talking about community-based okay. schools, based in their community. Yes. Okay. Well, well, I mean, they were still being bussed in and out. Okay. So uh, more white students were being bussed into University Park, you know, so that made it all right for a while. But they, they're back to the same thing. Now the that the decree thing. has been lifted. They've been pretty much doing it. If you ask me, they never stopped. You know, the, right. the racism has never stopped. But we, with the with the resolution, we also did get two seats on the board. So we will always have two seats. Uh, that way, we'll have a voice. But we're still we still don't have a voice because we have two African Americans on the school board, Dr. Hall and Maurice Brown, and we have five. Caucasian um, board members. So you have five to two. You have the, I call them the fatal five because they don't have our children's best interests at heart. At every board meeting, I tell them in their mission statement, I ask them, do you understand your mission statement? Do you really pay attention to it? Because in their mission statement, they're saying, that they're concerned about the well-being and the emotional stability of all of the students in the district. I told them there's no way in the world that they could be uh, worried about the African-American kids because how can you bust them out of their community? Park Forest children will be bust out all 13 years of their school life, from kindergarten through 12th grade. If they go through with this, if the school board go through the fatal five, members of the school board go through with this plan. They're talking about increasing the taxes for the next 20 plus years. If you put a child in the district now, by the time that child graduates high school and college and probably grad school or almost grad school, you will still be paying for the taxes. Hmm. Now, I, I have from the press release that that's an issue that's going to be discussed at a school board meeting tomorrow. But with that said, you mentioned uh, school board members, and we do have those two school board uh, members joining us on the line. So I first want to go to Dr. Nakia Hall. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Hall, for joining us tonight on BTR News. I have here that you are nine-and-a-half-year member of the Crete Monique 
Board of Education and currently the longest seated member on the board and has served as president for four years as well as vice president and secretary. But not only that, you're a longtime resident of University Park with four children who have all attended school in that district. So again, thank you for joining us. And um, wow, lot, a lot there that Miss Hudson laid out for us. So where do you want to pick up at? Now, she mentioned the possible closing of this school named after uh, Coretta Scott King, the Magnet School, and, and that the black community wants this school to remain open. And then there's some question from the press release saying like, you know, there's $2 million attached to one of these schools and they're going to use that to what, demolish this school? What's going on there, Dr. Hall? Well, first of all, thank you for having us all and giving us a chance to share our thoughts and concerns. Um, you mentioned um, I've been on the board a long time. I'll say that with that being said, I've witnessed a lot of issues within the school district and, and school board. Um, our district traditionally, as Ms. Hudson pointed out, um, have predominantly white school board members on the board. and, and we needed something like the consent decree and judgment order basically to force the district back in the 90s, late 90s, to do what was right by the people of the school district. Out of that consent decree, there were two seats designated as majority-minority seats. Those two seats are mine and Mr. Brown. Um, those were based off of the then population of minority residents. So that was 1998. Fast forward 20 years and our school district is nearly 70% African American. However, we only have two seats on the board designated for minority um, representation. So that in itself is an issue. And it's particularly an issue because of what we are witnessing now. And, and again, what it's showing is we need more representation on this school board that's reflective of the community that we serve. Um, I was elected in 2009. When I got on the board, myself and another board member, uh, we're both African-American. We, we got elected that year. There was already one African-American on the board, so that made three African-Americans. In 2013, we received a fourth African-American on the board. So in 2013, the board was reflective of the community that we were ser serving with majority of the seats um, being designated to African-American board members. However, when that took place and we basically claimed the seats of president, vice president, and secretary, I like to say, you know, all heck broke loose in our community because the face of the board was changing and we literally wow. had an element of community members that did not like that. So for the four years that we were in those seats, we suffered greatly um, discrimination, uh, bias, attacks at board meetings, attacks sent through emails. Um, we had a board member who was consistently writing letters to the editors, um, you know, criticizing us. So we suffered a lot. And in the last election, 
their you know community members were successful in taking it from that four over a course of a couple of years basically taking it from the four now back to two and i say all that to say that we as board members have taken on this fight however we are also suffering in this process because our voices are slowly diminishing and our voices are slowly being kept from being heard in this school district. And so this whole plan, they're deeming it the plan, quoted, um, was developed basically without much input from myself and Mr. Brown, and he can speak to that. Um, and we initially gave major pushback on it because it's just not fiscally responsible. So even putting the the community issues aside, for one, as board members, we are charged with being fiscally responsible and the plan is not fiscally responsible. And then also the plan, as um, Ms. Hudson and Ms. Johnson um, indicated, the plan takes us back 20 years. And let me tell you a little bit about Coretta Scott King. And so when we got Coretta Scott King, I believe this is the 12th year of the school. The school previously was Hickory Elementary and Hickory um, back then was on the academic warning list for four years. And back then under the No Child Left Behind Act of 2002, if a school is under that for four years, the either the state will come in and take it over or the district has an option to basically reconstruct the school the district decided at the time to reconstruct the school however um, instead of keeping all of the kids from university park in their home school they only designated 40 percent of those seats to university park students and in order to even get a seat in the school you had to go through a lottery system so even in that it uh, divided the community and it, it caused even more forced busing. And so they brought in this new program, this IB program, which is an awesome program. The program in itself, uh, it, it's geared to creating world learners. The program also pushes for our students to become thinkers, communicators, uh, be open-minded. It also looks as parents as partners in education it uh, looks at education as an opportunity to uh, develop the whole child. And these types of things, um, when they're incorporated into schools, they lead to success and particularly helping to close the African-American achievement gap. So it's an awesome program brought into the school, but basically we're only gonna offer it to 40% of the students in University Park. And then in that you have to actually apply and hopefully you'll get selected in the lottery. So fast forward, um, now, Coretta Scott King has been the top school in our district for, for many years. It's also one of the top 10 schools in Will County, and it's a celebrated school. And so one of the issues is why are we closing a school that has been so successful and particularly successful for African-American students, increasing their learning, increasing their achievement, increasing their exposure to um, different learning styles and collaboratively working with parents, all of those things that you, you see statistically are necessary for African-Americans to be successful, that school has. 
So now with this plan, we would be removing all of that. We would also be basically reenacting the issues from 20 years ago. And we would once again be sliding a community, University Park, that just has had a history of being slighted and looked over and mistreated. And so as a board member who actually also lives in University Park, I have a dual role here. And I'm also a parent. All of my children went to Coretta Scott King. And so actually I even bring that into um, the, my thoughts and concerns about this. And I you know, express that this is not something that should be done. We are tired as University Park members of being slighted and treated differently. We are tired of other communities being um, thought of over us. And I support the residents of University Park and I will continue to support them in insisting that this school and this program stays in our community. The moment we become successful, the moment our children become successful, now we want to pull the plug on that and it's just not right. I would agree with that. Um, we are overdue for our station identification break. Um, we do want to hear from Mr. Brown, and we'll be coming to you, Mr. Maurice Brown, the other school board member. But some quick thoughts before we take our station identification break. Um, when when you were just describing to me the attitudes, uh, Dr. Hall, that when the school board members got a little let me say the school board got a little color in it and these people started freaking out and that kind of reminded me of something conservative radio host Laura Ingram recently said on a podcast Fox News host Laura Ingram said she lamented that the America we know and love doesn't exist anymore because of demographic changes in the county that she blamed on illegal and legal immigration. Now we're talk we're talking about American citizens here. We're talking about African Americans. We're not talking about refugees or undocumented uh, workers, and we're not talking about those coming here um, possibly with a family member who has a work visa. So that's not what we're talking about. And so it sounded like to me the changing demographics of the school board getting a little more color in it uh, seemed to alarm some folks and then also the thing that you mentioned about 40% the uh, community, the black community was allocated about 40% of the seats but the district is 70% black children again so um, what's going on here you know things, the numbers aren't, aren't matching so definitely we've seen this play out over the decades and it's still with us today. But we're going to take our station identification break. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News on the Black Talk Radio Network. When we come back, we'll be speaking with a school board member, Dr. I mean, excuse me, Mr. Maurice Brown. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New Black Media for the New Millennium. And welcome back. As we um, are approaching the end of our show, we do have one more person that we would love to hear from. And again, that is school board member Mr. Maurice 
Mo Brown, who wears several hats in the school district. He's a senior electrical engineer by profession. He has been a taxpayer in the district for the past 27 years. He has been a standing member of the district 201U school board for the past eight years. He has been a distinguished trustee of Monee Township, the governing body for the 201U school district for the past 10 years, and is a parent who's had three of his four now-grown Division I college-graduated children to matriculate through the uh, um, Creek Monee High School. And welcome to BTR News and waiting so patiently, uh, Mr. Maurice Brown. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, uh, Mr. Reed. Can you hear me okay? Uh yes, it you do sound like we might be on speakerphone or or something. If 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 that's the case, if you could take us off speakerphone if possible, if that's what's going on, but we can hear you. So where where, where do you want to start, uh, Mr. Brown, as a board member, as a taxpaying uh, community member? Uh, tell us your concerns about this issue. Wow, I mean, it's kind of hard to say exactly where to start because, you know, my colleagues have laid the foundation and just laid it out. Uh, I don't think I can have done it any better. But, you know, the reason I got on the board again was to be in a position to allow all of the constituents, it didn't matter what color they were or are, to have a voice. I saw some things, you know, when my kids going to school, they would come home and share some things with me. And I said, the first opportunity I get, I will run for a seat on the board. So I've been having the, I actually had the honor and the privilege to serve with Dr. Hall for the last almost eight years for me, and actually was her vice president for several years. So, you know, when I see the racism and how it's just been building up to where it is right now, it just stirs my spirit really rough. It's been a fight and a lot of things that goes on out in public, obviously it's not seen behind closed doors, doors that Dr. Hall and myself have seen. And one phrase that I don't think I've heard through this conversation was the phrase splitting. That splitting is as I see it and how I see the Creek establishment, the Caucasian people out there, they whole goal is to cut University Park and majority minority students and families away from the school district. And this is just another token, another part of their strategy by closing down our CFK. Again, as all three of our members have said already, one of the best performing schools in the state of Illinois and in the county. So this is their opportunity to do. And we do have a middle school and going back to the judge order, and if they could do that, they will actually leave. We actually bus Caucasian people to the middle school, but that's by design from the judge who said that the middle school would be the only middle school in the district after it was reopened. And also going back to the consent decree, it was stated that the district commits to use good, should, they ought to, which they haven't done, the district should commit to use good faith and in its best effort to develop and implement programs and strategies designed to achieve a level of racial diversity in each of our elementary schools, which approximate 
the overall racial composition of students in the district. That is not the case. We see so many of the teachers, which is predominantly white, have no sensitivity to our students. And right now in this new school board makeup, I've never seen a school board makeup who's moving fast forward on their agenda. So as they put it, to set our students, African-Americans straight, they are not tolerating the simplest infractions that our students may involve themselves with. And the next thing you know, they're taking advantage of that small infraction and escalating it to the potential expulsion. And we have never had the expulsions over the last year that, I mean, I'm talking about expulsions like it's no tomorrow. And I will not tolerate it. The speakers that's on this call will not tolerate it as well as so many community members. Mr. Brown, so, if I may interject uh, real quick um, before we run out of time. What what you just described about the suspensions, we have a program that comes on Wednesday nights on Black Talk Radio Network. It's called New Abolitionist Radio. So the topic of, of school-to-prison pipeline has come up quite a bit. And we're looking at all of these related issues, whether we're talking about police brutality or whether we are talking about you know, disproportionate resources for our school children and what have you. This is all to create, or the school to prison pipeline, this is to create new slaves to quote a Kanye West song. And I know Kanye ain't too popular, but he made a song called New Slaves. Now, he didn't mention the 13th Amendment loophole that allows for involuntary servitude and slavery as a punishment for crime, but that's the system that was set up, the new form of slavery that was set up after the Civil War during, you know, the so-called Reconstruction, which we know was, you know, the erection or furtherance of Jim Crow. And so that's what it sounds that's what it sounds like. I hear these stories from all over the nation. This this prison, school to prison pipeline is real, and that's what those suspensions are about. So what what are some of the solutions? Um well Mr. Brown, I cut you off. I'm going to let you go ahead and finish your thought, but then we're going to go back around real quickly from each of our guests and find out, you know, get their final thoughts and what are the solutions for your community. All right. So, Mr. Brown, please continue. Sure. I mean, you just hit it on the head, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. And I heard that Cynthia, our first talker on on this program here, she mentioned, I believe she was mentioning and talking about just suspending our kids, not giving them the opportunity. Our mission statement is just kind of just going through the motions, reading it. And my intentions, as well as Dr. Hall intentions as board members, is to give our kids all the opportunity to excel. That's what we're there for, to promote education, to not just let them go through the motion, but on the contrary, again, they are trying to find opportunities to get them in prison, to get them expelled, so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, the judge laid down the foundation, and they think this by the sheer number and the time frame on this consent decree that it expired in 2008, there's things still here that, that's relevant. And we will pursue these things as relevant on this consent decree 
as well as other things. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Mr. Reed. Real quick, does that mean uh, possible litigation and taking them back to court? What what does that mean? And, and Mr. Brown, I want to give you the opportunity. We're going to go back around, but give you an opportunity for some final thoughts. And what what's some possible solutions for the community? Is the community engaged as it should be? I know there was some protests, uh, two protests today at different times of the day. So I toss it back to you, Mr. Brown. You know, we have, you know, absolutely strategizing and we're trying to, you know, really lay out of things to combat this madness, uh, not to exclude, and this is paramount that we do be ready to invoke our legal rights and present back to the courts some type of mitigation for them to provide us some type of relief and mitigate all this what's going on. So we are looking at those things and we are talking to legal people and legal minds. And in the meantime, we are trying to share the story with the community when it comes to closing down CSK. And it may take a petition at some point because they're trying to sell bonds and trying to sell uh, all type of funding media to go ahead and continue to build schools and upgrade their schools in their community and disregarding the majority or the minority African-American community. So we got a lot of things going, a couple different directions, but it's, it's aimed to meet our goals. And again, the legal perspective is high on our chart. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Uh, Dr. Nakia Hall, uh, your final thoughts and solutions for the community. Yes, um, you mentioned um, some key things in regards to what our students are facing as well as Mr. Brown. Our students, particularly African-American students, are facing so many hurdles and so many barriers. Um, when you really think about everything that our children have to deal with, it's a wonder how they successfully even complete a K-12 education. Our children deal with not only whatever they're bringing um, from home or their community like every other student, but also our students, our African-American students, are often dealing with being discriminated against, being treated unfairly, not given the same opportunities as their white counterparts. And our children are having to daily figure out and, and conclude how they can still be successful in spite of these barriers. Um, we, we often talk in education about not only the teacher shortage, but the minority teacher shortage. There is, um, I don't think a lot of people understand, but there is an Illinois school code that mandates that school districts adopt a policy where they will seek minority candidates. And there's a reason why that had to become law. When we start looking at these laws, we really need to start understanding why these things needed to become law. Um, also, we need more minorities, and I hate using that word actually, so I wanna say people of color, African-Americans in particular on these school boards that are helping to make these, these critical decisions that affect our kids. Um, I've seen uh, board members uh, make negative comments about our African-American students uh, wanting to, you know, not give them a chance when they've given, you know, white students a chance. Our kids are faced with, with 
so much and it can appear that the fate of their success is really in the hands of Caucasians on school boards and oftentimes Caucasians in the classroom. And so we can focus on building up um, African-Americans in school leadership, also African-Americans in the classroom where our children are seeing people who understand their culture. And even if you're not African-American as an educator, but also pushing for cultural competency training uh, for, for everybody. You know, everybody needs to understand how to deal with their students and the culture and, and thoughts and beliefs that they bring to the classroom every day. Also, districts need to understand the impact of um, suspensions and expulsions on our children. That school-to-prison pipeline is real. It's not something that's fake or, or, or fictitious. It is real, and we in our district have to uh, speak out on, we were just talking about it the other night, Mr. Brown. We have board members using terms like repeat offenders, calling students repeat offenders because they've um, got in trouble multiple times. We had to give pushback on that. Why are we calling our students repeat offenders using a justice system term on our children and people have the thought of, well, they're going to end up there anyway. So it's all types of things that are going on. And I think as a community, we need to demand that our children are treated fairly. We need to demand that we have people in these seats that are there for the right reasons and who care about all kids. We need to demand that we are setting the bar high in expectations, not only for students, but also for those who are teaching our students, those who are governing these school districts, those that are leading these buildings. And also, we need to, when we see something that's not right, stand up and speak out. That's a whole other issue. Are we as communities coming together, voicing our concerns? Are we coming to the board meetings? Are we sharing our thoughts and concerns? And not only that, insisting that things change. And you know, how can we empower our communities to have a voice and also use their voice? And so those are some of the things I think we can do uh, and encourage within our communities. And I think we're doing a lot of that now. But one of the reasons why I wanted to be on this show is if this can be shared with even more people, because we need more people in the fight. And not only that, it's not just happening in University Park. This is happening around the country. It's happening in our state, around the country. And if we can inspire others, to say, you know what, we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to speak up and we're going to demand that our children are treated fairly and that our children have the same rights um, as everyone else. And at times even more because they need it, because they have more barriers. And that's the word that you'll hear a lot in education now. It's called equity. That's what every student receives what they need. And some children need more because of what they're dealing with. And so I think those are the some some of the things that we can do as a community to make these situations better. Thank you, Dr. Hall. Um, I would also, um, before we toss in and, and let Miss um, Hudson have the final word as we get ready to wrap up our program tonight, again, want to thank you all. I want to thank Miss Johnson for making this very important uh, broadcast go down because as Dr. 
as um, Dr. Hall just said, it's not just happening in uni- in university part where they are. This is playing out in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's playing out in the suburbs of Atlanta. It's playing out in Detroit, Los Angeles, where- wherever you have a majority population in a district of African-Americans and non-white students, period. We see this. It- it's just a pattern. It's a pattern. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about as I heard about the makeup of the school board, um, just the history of it, one of the things that we try to promote on New Abolitionist Radio is checking with these uh, teachers' unions in these schools. And now, you know, maybe that doesn't apply to elementary school. Um, certainly teachers' unions do. We were, we heard the term used for um uh, tenure and what have you, but what we have found um, is that a lot of these teacher unions may be invested in private prisons or jail bonds and what have you. These are publicly traded on the stock market and uh, shout out to the students of the uh, University of Columbia, Columbus for their successful divestment program. I forgot how many millions Columbia University had invested in private prisons, as well as a school district out in California. Um, I think it was um, not a school district, but a university. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Southern California University System or or what the exact name was, but they just recently had a divestment campaign, which led to millions and millions of dollars of their pensions uh, being divested from these private prison stocks. And so that's a big conflict of interest right there. I mean, what incentive does, let's say, a teacher who may have stock in, in prisons, what incentive does she have uh, to, you know, treat these children fairly? Okay, she doesn't, you know, or he doesn't. You know, you can't, you can't be for education, but then be for the incarceration of the population that you are charged with educating, it, it just doesn't work. So we're gonna toss it to Miss um, Cynthia Hudson uh, again, the original plaintiff in the uh, lawsuit that brought about that federal consent decree, which sounds like it may need to be re-implemented. But Miss Hudson, thank you again for uh, bringing this, helping us to bring this to the to the, our global community, the African diaspora, bring it to our attention. But what would be your final thoughts and, if you can, some of the solutions that may not have been mentioned that you might want to mention? Well, I thank you again as well for having this conversation because it needs to be heard, you know, and, and you're right, it's going on way too often in every uh every community that you can think of, every state. Uh, my thing is the, the African-Americans, they need to start coming out more. We have got to start coming out in droves. We need to pack these meetings, you know, and I've already told the school board, I was a plaintiff in the first uh, lawsuit, and I don't mind being the plaintiff in the second lawsuit. I said, and the, I told them the rate they're going the direction they're going, they're doing the same thing that led us to the first lawsuit, and it looks like we're going to bring a second lawsuit. So if they want to keep going in that direction, I have no problems in standing up and fighting for our kids. I told them, you have four communities, 
two African, predominantly African-American communities, two predominantly white communities. They're trying to tear down the two African-American communities, University Park and the Will County portion of Park Forest, while they build up the two white communities, Crete and Monique, on our tax dollars. I told them as long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to fight them on that. Their, their treatment of our children, it's unfair racist practices all the time. They're trying to give our kids records instead of education. So if our kids get into a little trouble, you know, they can do whatever. And immediately, you know, a lot of times what the school wants to do is call in the police and have them arrested. So now they have a record on them. So now that record is going to follow them. They're not going to be able to get a good job. They're not, not going to have a good career because they have a high school or a middle school record. They're not just waiting till high school. They're going to the middle school kids and probably even the grade school. I've helped parents fight cases where they had to get lawyers. They had to come out of their pockets and spend money getting lawyers fighting the schools. And that's ridiculous. With the high taxes that we pay and then we have to, on top of that, pay for lawsuits as well with the board doing this unnecessary spending with this residency firm. They figured they would go after our kids any way they can. And they put out lies, you know, but then it's okay when their students, their students can get on the Internet and post things, you know, waving guns around with KKK hoods on, saying coming to a school near you, and then the schools and the, the uh, police, the Creek police, they'll laugh it off and say, oh, well, they didn't mean anything by that. That's just kids' play. It's not kids' play, and it's, they know it. It's antisocial behavior. That's right. what it is. They, they fly Confederate flags. Freedom of speech. That's okay. They can do whatever they want to, and they can get away with it. Our children, the African-American minority students, can do simple things, and they get records for it. It's unfair. It's racism, and, it, and, and we need to put a stop to it. And I told them if they want to build a new school, build it in Park Forest. So University Park have the middle school. Crete have the high school. Monet Elementary have that school. So if you want to build a new school, don't build it in Crete. Build it in Park Forest. That way, every community will have a school. But you still have to keep the elementary school in University Park. Why would you close the, the best-performing school in the district? I told the board members they're trying to close it because they want more of their children to go to that school. But because it's our home school, they can't have more of their students going to that school. Mm. So this is their answer. Close the school altogether. Wow, that's really petty. That's really a petty, immature way to uh, approach it. But again, I want to thank you uh, for your lifelong fight, it seems, for our children's education, not just your own children, but 
the uh, black community in general and to each and every one of our guests tonight. So again, we just got through speaking with Dr. Nakia Hall, board member, um, Mr. Maurice Mobrown, also a board member, and Cynthia Hudson, a very concerned community member who was the original plaintiff that brought the federal consent decree uh, to this district to begin with. Um, I want to thank Miss Johnson one of the for, for one of the plaintiffs. Thank you. I want to thank Miss Johnson for setting it up, and I would like you all to come back from time to time and give us updates as necessary on your progress. Perhaps other communities who are facing the same fight around the nation can can learn from what you all are going through and uh, perhaps find positive solutions for their, for their situations as well. But thank you all and peace and blessings to all and good night. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us tonight. BTR news every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday at six o'clock. PM Eastern time, please check the website, Black Talk Radio Network, for more live programming that may be coming on other independent black stations on our network. Remember, National Radio Day, and we have to support our own media. We like to, and we have good reason to complain about this other media that's telling our stories, but if we want to tell our own stories, then that means we have to build and maintain our own media. So we hope that you'll make a donation to the Black Talk Media Project in recognition of National Radio Day on this August 20th, 2018. Peace and blessings to all. Good night.